you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. As Scott said before we prayed, in some ways these passages are illuminating uh, to us in a way that they have not been for some time. But mixed in with that is the difficulty of the surrounding Christian culture and all of the things that have been brought into the context of Christian churches over the last 150 years. There was a change in the end times teaching after a man named James Darby came to the United States from England. In the early 1830s, he began to formulate an idea of how all of the Bible spoke about things particular, not only the end times, but predominantly about the end times. His teaching in the 1830s had never been taught before. I don't say that lightly. I want you to really understand that. That the predominant thinking of end times teaching that is taught in most Christian churches in America today, that teaching did not come about in its full context until 1830 or 1835. We have to take that into consideration when we look at these passages and how most of the time these passages are interpreted by many. My goal will not be to explain to you James Darby's view, for James Darby's view has problems which we can't even enter into at the moment right now. My goal is to give you a pattern to see what these passages mean so that you can look at more of what is the real thing and then look at what may not be the real thing and see it for what it is. That also means that there's quite a few of us that grew up with some teaching about the end times that 
quite frankly, is just wrong. I, I don't know how else to say that. And I say some of us, including myself. I grew up with some wrong teaching on the end times. What I think about Matthew 24 today and 25 today, I've thought about that for the last 20 years. But before 1999, I would have interpreted Matthew 24 and 25 in a completely different way. In 1999, I began to look at things differently. And by 2005 or 2006, these passages had taken a, a, a more holistically biblical context. And I think we have to see that and know that. That also means that I'm going to say some things today that it's quite likely some of you sitting in front of me will go, uh-uh, no, don't you say that. <laughs> I might even make a few of you mad unintentionally, and I don't want to do that. My goal is not to make anyone mad this morning. I do not want anyone to walk out angry or upset or bothered or frustrated or for you to sit there just steaming on the inside. I have no desire for any of that. My goal is simply to try to give you some explanation about these passages over the next weeks ahead. Now, you get a break for two weeks, the 17th and the 24th. We're going to preach on the incarnation. Um, I think that'll be more fitting than the end times, okay? <laughs> I'm going to do the Old Testament incarnation next week. Scott's going to preach New Testament incarnation the 24th, so you get a little bit of a break after today, okay? But while we're here today and where we're going after the first of the year, don't, don't think anybody's trying to make you mad. We're not trying to do that. We just want to explain the passages the best of our ability, okay? So we can have discussion, we can have conversation, we can, all kinds of things. This this goes back to my point originally. Some of you have been around here a long time. I've been here 20-something years now. Some of you have been here as long as I have. Um, my goal has been to say to you, if somebody tells you they understand the end times completely, you need to run. Okay? So there's always room for discussion on these things, but you need to understand as we dive into these passages, we're going to look very thoughtfully at some of the context of them so that hopefully it will help you to see them in a better way and to understand what Jesus is speaking about, especially from the context of the Olivet Discourse. So that being said, let's move along into this sense. It's already been read to you from Luke 21 this morning. Verse 6 says, As for these things, Jesus speaking to the disciples, As for these things which you are looking at, Speaking of the temple, once again, this is in the same context, Matthew 24. Ask for these things which you are looking at. The days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. In Luke 21, the Lord Jesus says, Hey, disciples, these things that you're looking at, that, that means right now. He's saying these things in Luke 21, 6 that you're looking at right now, the days will come in which there will not be one stone left upon another which will not be torn down. In Matthew 24, Jesus said to them in verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here, here, here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. When we deal with these passages, context is everything. 
When you interpret scripture, context is everything. You probably have found that over the years if you've uh, parented children or taught children or been around children. Context is everything. You can give a direction to a child which you think makes all the sense in the world. But then you find out after they went and did what you thought you wanted them to do that you had not given all of the detail necessary necessary in the context for them to actually complete what you wanted them to do. For instance, sometimes children need specific instructions instead of take the trash out. That's kind of open-ended, isn't it? We like to give them more context sometimes. Take the trash out and put it in the garbage can that is under the carport. took the trash out. It just happened to be on the back deck or in the yard. Context is everything. When we go to interpret these passages, the Lord Jesus is wanting us to consider the context of what is happening. He's just preached all of these woes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Everything has been surrounding the temple. The triumphal entry, he's cleaned out the temple, he's taught in the temple, and here he is walking out of the temple, and the, the disciples are saying to him, whoa, you've said some very hard things, and now don't you see this temple building? Lord Jesus, from Luke's account, says, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Matthew's account is very similar. Do you not see all these things? There's a context here. And that context brings two questions to the minds of the disciples. Number one this morning, we talked about this briefly last week. Number one, the disciples asked two questions regarding this prophecy. The first question Letter A, when will these things happen? When will these things happen? Letter B, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now that's really verse 3, the end of verse 3. These two questions are put before the Lord Jesus privately right there. They don't really understand what he said. And they form these two questions and these two questions lead us to main point number two, and where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. The disciples' two questions shape the whole of the Olivet Discourse. Number two, the disciples' two questions shape the whole of the Olivet Discourse. Letter A under number two, Jesus answered the disciples with several words of warning. Jesus answered the disciples with several words of warning. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. This is a word of warning. So number one in letter A, he warned them in the context of personal directive. Notice what he says here. See to it that no one misleads who? You. Now remember, the disciples had come to him. The disciples had heard all of his teaching in the temple. 
The disciples had seen the triumphal entry. The disciples had seen him clear out the temple. The the disciples come out and they look at the temple buildings and they're in Jerusalem and the disciples are the ones that say, Jesus, don't you see this temple? Don't you see all of Jerusalem? Don't you see all this here? And then Jesus turns to the disciples and tells them that the temple will be torn down. There's a day coming when not one stone will be left upon another. So they go to him and they ask questions. Now, Luke records this as a few of the disciples came to him. Matthew records this in the context of kind of a more holistic way. That's not a problem. People say, well, there's contradiction in the scripture. Luke says only a few of the disciples went, and Matthew indicates it's all of them. There can be a broad context to that, and the Lord Jesus could have mentioned these things to several of the disciples uh, in conversation as well as the whole group. And we have here that at some point he gives some indication to those disciples who were in the hearing that they gave, that he gave this information to them. And what was it? See to it that no one misleads you. He warned them in the context of personal directive. Notice the use of the word you in this passage here in, in uh, uh, verse 4, but he's also started that whole context from verse 2. In verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, who's he talking to? He's talking to the apostles. He's talking to those disciples right then and there. He's looking them directly in the eye and he's saying, Truly I say to you, do you not see all these things? See to it that no one mislead you. Also look at verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. It's interesting in verse 6 how he says it's not yet the end. He's pointing to them saying there's something coming. All these hearing of these wars and these rumors of wars, you will hear that. You yourselves, disciples, in your generation, you will hear that. And that's not yet the end. Also in verse 9. Now, this is is very pointed. Remember, this is in the context of these whole passages. Look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. We must note first and foremost in these passages there is a direct correlation between Jesus' words to the disciples and what will happen to the disciples themselves or upcoming in their time frame. I'm not saying to you, let me be clear, I'm not saying to you that there's not something far future that will be discussed in 24 and 25. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying to you is that if you skip the near future representation that was given to the disciples right then and there to their face, if you skip all of that and you go all the way to this far future thing and you start talking about grasshoppers and helicopters and all these other things, if you get there before you've ever looked at this context, you will miss major portions of the meaning of this text. 
You know what else you'll miss? You will miss the promise of covenant fulfillment. Ooh. God wants you to see how he promises things to his covenant people and then he fulfills them. And when you miss the promise of covenant fulfillment, you miss the comfort of God that he gives to his people that he will not leave them or forsake them. Don't jump too soon to the far future before you deal with the near future. Right there in their faces, the Lord Jesus is looking at those disciples and he's going, you, you, Peter, John, you. Well, he not only warned them in the context of this personal directive, he warned them not to be misled in days ahead. Now, first of all, we need to see the near future context of what he's saying. He's warning them not to be misled in these days ahead. Specifically about what? Verse 5. He's warning them. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. He's saying, do not be misled by false messianic prophecies. He's already established the personal directive of it by using that personal pronoun, you. And he's saying, in your time, it will happen. One historian notes that uh, after the time of Christ's death and resurrection, that there were many who were coming and saying that they were the Messiah. There were multiple time frames where there were individuals who were coming and calling themselves the Christ. Before we start talking about far future antichrists, look at the fulfillment of this in the near future context. In the time of the disciples, there were those who were false messianic prophets, even calling themselves Messiah. Now why would they do such a thing? Well, um, the idea of the Messiah runs through the whole of the Old Testament. This had been a teaching that had been among the Jews for literally centuries and even millennia, that there was Messiah. And that idea of Messiah to come was something that was very prevalent in the Jewish culture and in the context of the time. Not only that, but even Gentile cultures, they had a context in Messiah. Somebody that would save the people. But the Jews had something very specific. And so there were those who would come and make proclamation in a false way that they were the Messiah. And Jesus is right there warning the disciples, it's going to happen in your lifetime and in the next generation leading up to A.D. 70, this is going to happen. Well, he warned them not to be misled in days ahead about messianic prophecies, prophecies, but do not be misled by forthcoming rumors of wars. Look at verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. So there's a double context there. You'll be hearing of wars. There will be wars going on. And you'll be hearing rumors of wars, wars that may take place, 
Now, we do that in modern culture today, don't we? Uh, we're always talking about, I'll tell you what, if this doesn't get straightened out, we're going to be in a war with China. We're going to be in a war with the Middle East. I hear this is happening. I hear that's happening. We do that all the time. Same thing was happening in their day and in that context. And Jesus is giving them warning. Listen, you'll be hearing of wars. There will actually be wars going on. And we know through multiple historians that the Romans were involved in multiple wars during these years. If you take some time to uh, read some of the, the history of Rome in that first century, uh, you'll note that Rome was always trying to conquer the next place. And even when they would conquer one, a lot of times a group would conquer it back, and there was always a, a, a flux and a flow to these wars. Whether that was moving toward the Far East or whether that was in Northern Africa, there was always some type of war going on. Egypt would have been the prized possession for the Roman Empire, and they wanted to keep Egypt all the time. And so there would be a, a flux of these wars taking place. And you'd have to imagine that the disciples would have heard of these wars in the context because they're right there on the Mediterranean and Africa is just south of them, especially Egypt. So Jesus is saying, you're going to hear these things. You're going to hear about it and you're going to hear the rumors of wars. What's interesting now, note in verse 6, he says, see that you are not frightened. Before you get to a far future context, you have to deal with that in the near future. He says, see that you are not frightened. Who's he talking to? Somebody 5,000 years away? That would have been nothing to the disciples. What would they have had to be frightened about if this was all about something that was four or 5,000 years away or 6,000 years away or 10,000 years away? What, what, would, what would that have to do with the disciples? They would have not, not had any idea what to do with that. They would have heard Jesus' message and that meant nothing to them. Before you get to the far future, you have to deal with the near future. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. When? It must take place in a time that they're knowing of it because it's right there in front of them. And then he says, but that is not yet the end. You're going to hear about these wars. You're going to hear rumors of wars. Those things must take place. Don't be frightened. But that is not yet the end. That is not yet the end. Well, let her see. Do not be misled by imminent natural disasters. He's saying don't be misled in days ahead. A is messianic prophecies. B is rumors of wars forthcoming. C is do not be misled by imminent natural disasters. Seven, verse seven, speaking about the nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's in the context of what we just talked about with the wars. But then the last part of verse seven, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Now, whatever far future we could think about that, before you ever think about far future, you've got to think to the disciples, that had to make some sense to them too. It had to be something near future to that. And he's saying, don't be misled by this. These, these famines and these earthquakes, this is the stuff that always happens. 
This is the ebb and flow of the world. Now, I, I want to give a little bit of a, uh, an application here to us. I would encourage you to be very careful about trying to take uh, your internet news site or whatever you may watch on TV about the news and what's going on with Israel and trying to sit down and making a chart as to when Christ is going to return based on the number of natural disasters and the number of wars and all those kinds of things that are going on. Jesus is going to make it plain as we go through the Olivet Discourse that to do that is, is really absurd because not one of us will know the time of his coming. Even in the last 40 to 50 years, there have been multiple men and one or two men multiple times who have tried to come up with a date to the second coming of Christ. And they've even named the date and written it out specifically. And they were wrong. But they were sitting down with Daniel and Matthew and Luke and Revelation, and they were marking out all these charts trying to take apocalyptic literature, which is a, a particular genre of literature in the scripture, trying to take that and, and make literal pinpoints in time to where they could march down through time and work out when Christ is going to return, when the scripture plainly says, you'll not know the time or the day or the hour. There's going to be these famines and earthquakes. They would see them. Matter of fact, one historian record, records that sometime after uh, 40 AD, there was a massive earthquake um, in and around uh, several of the Roman provinces. Well, is, is that the end? I mean, cities fall to this earthquake. Is that the end? Is the Messiah coming? And Jesus says, that's not yet the end. Don't get caught up with that. Verse 8, he says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. The beginning. Number three, under this section of the warnings, do not be misled in days ahead. He warned them of definite impending difficulty. He warned them of definite impending difficulty. The rumors of the wars and the context of the rumors of those wars, they happen right there in near future time. He's saying this is impending. It's right before you. It, it's coming. You're going to hear the rumors of these wars. You're going to hear uh, of the wars themselves. It's right there in front of you. It's impending. It's definite impending difficulty. It's coming. These famines and earthquakes, the disasters, they happen in a near future time. There are multiple famines even among the Jews themselves and the earthquakes we've already noted. Letter C. The persecution happened at a near future time. This, this issue of the persecution, look at verse 9. I go back to it. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. He 
He's saying to them, this is coming to you. You're going to be persecuted. The followers of my name will be persecuted. Now, what does the book of Acts highlight to us? I encourage you, if you've not spent much time in the book of Acts, go read. I mean, right after the day of Pentecost, it didn't take long for the Sadducees and the, the priests to come after Peter and John. All the way right there in Acts chapter 4, we have Peter and John being arrested for preaching what? For preaching the gospel of who Jesus Christ is. They're imprisoned for a short time. This happens multiple times. What happens to Stephen in the book of Acts? He's not only persecuted, but he's martyred. He's killed. What happens to Paul in just about every town he goes into? Jews in the synagogues chase him around. Chase him out of town. He's stoned. He's left for dead. He's marched off and imprisoned at times. There's a near future context to all of this, and the Lord Jesus is warning them. The persecution happens at a near future time. Even to the point that religious leaders of the day will kill you, Roman authorities of the day will destroy Jerusalem. Jesus is giving them a particular picture of what will happen to them and a particular picture of what will happen to Jerusalem itself. Luke, in chapter 21, verse 20, notes it this way. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. This is how Jesus records, or excuse me, how Luke records what Jesus says. He says, you're going to see this. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. This is the desolation. Now, we're not going to get into that specifically. It's going to be in verse 15 uh, after the first of the year. And, uh, and we'll get there in Matthew 24, 15. But there's a recognition here that the destruction of Jerusalem is in AD 70. And that happens. It literally happens in that generation. There may have been... Just a couple of the disciples that saw the destruction of Jerusalem. But all of those disciples in that next generation that heard the disciples teach, they saw the destruction of Jerusalem for sure. He says, look, you need to recognize this is, this is coming. It's very near future. He's putting this right before them to say, you need to be the ones to be thoughtful about these things. He doesn't present this context to where everything he's saying is simply just something far future they don't have to worry about. He's saying, no, you need to be thoughtful about this. You need to know this is going to happen. You need to be aware. He even warns them, the falling away happens at a near future time. Verse 10. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. At that time, many will fall away. 
the time of this tribulation that's spoken of in verse 9. At that time, the time of this tribulation, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. The tribulation he's speaking of is this impending doom of Jerusalem and the temple. Because he already told us early on he was speaking about the destruction of the temple. Not one stone will be left upon another at this temple. That's been the context of him working through this is that statement that he made. When they said, do you see all these things? Don't you see the temple? He said, no, no, no. Do you see all these things? And not one stone will be left upon another. So when that tribulation comes, at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Isn't it interesting in some of Paul's letters Don't we know that there are people that Paul calls out for falling away? Don't we know that in 1 John there are people that are called out for falling away? Paul notes Hymenaeus. He notes others who were falling away. Because the pressure increases on the Jews. Rome is increasing its pressure. AD 70 didn't happen in a vacuum. There was a time period uh, for, for really almost a century where Rome, over really about 150 years, was having to deal with the Jews time and time again, and the Jews were causing great problems for Rome. Now, I'm not making an anti-Semitic statement there. I'm just stating history, okay? I'm not saying that Rome should have annihilated the Jews. I'm just saying that's what happened. And so they were coming after them. Time and time again, and it's building, and finally Rome's getting tired of it. And the Caesars are saying, we've had enough, okay, fine. When you see that, you need to recognize this was a building time coming. And Jesus is pointing out, it's a, it's, you're, you're going to see it. It's going to be coming, and you're going to see this falling away. Well, under this section of being misled, the false prophets happen at a near future time. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. False prophecy happens in our day. And we certainly want to have a proper discussion of that. But you need to recognize in the context of what Jesus is teaching right here, there has to be a new a near future context to it. or Otherwise, the disciples, it would have been lost to them. They, they, might as, they might as well just been a deaf audience. Jesus just talking to people who aren't listening. It's, it's like a teacher who gets up in front of a class and starts to teach ancient history and teenagers stare at them blindly and blankly and... No, no, no. You have to get the picture. The disciples were very intent. They were hanging on the very words of Jesus because this meant something to them. Because he kept saying, you, you, you. Well, fourthly, under the context of the warnings, he warned them of predetermined far future difficulty. He warned them of predetermined far future future difficulty. Now I'm going to say less about this this morning because that's not the full context of these passages and verses. 
But I don't want to leave you with some sense that there's not something far future there, but I want you to start to see the near future first and foremost. But there are some identifications in the Olivet Discourse, even a little bit here in chapter, uh, excuse me, in these verses to uh, 1 through 14, but in the whole of the Olivet Discourse, there's some context to this far future difficulty. One writer says, the prophetic material found in this sixth discourse has reference not only to events near at hand, that's the near future, but also to those stretching far into the future. Now, where would he give indication of that in all of that discourse? Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, you need to see the both and here. You need to recognize the both and. Some of you have been around here a long time. Uh, our, our beloved first pastor, Joey, he used to say, near and far future to us all the time. He used to remind us of Sesame Street, right? Near, far. Y'all remember that? Okay. And we loved, we, every time Joey did it, we laughed. We loved it. Okay. But he was trying to illustrate a point to us that was very important. There are things that are near future and far future, and then Joey would say it's a both and. You have to have the both and to understand the scripture. Don't look at either or, look at the both and. And here we have both and. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. Now, if you get the context of the phrase, I want to encourage you, if you have some time to go uh, read uh, R.C. Sproul's book, uh, The Last Days According to Jesus, he spends a lot of time in some, some pages and paragraphs dedicated to this phrase, in the whole world. There's also some videos out there that you can watch that are online. I think they're on YouTube for free, actually. And you can watch him give lectures on his book. And he tends to give us an important context to this phrase, in the whole world. There is a, an idea that in the whole world, some people think, once again, means every single individual will get to hear the gospel. But that's not the way that the, uh, the New Testament writers often use the word world. The word world was an encompassing idea of going out to the whole of a place. It doesn't mean every single individual. Some of you say, well, how, how in the world could God condemn someone if they had never heard the gospel? They're actually condemned because they're sinners, not because they didn't hear the gospel or not because they even rejected the gospel. They're condemned because they're sinners. We have to understand that there is a sense that this passage is actually worked out and fulfilled in the near future. You can go look at some interactive maps of how far the gospel went leading up to the time of A.D. 70, and in the known world, the gospel, through the preaching of the apostles and going out through the various churches, it reached a vast majority of the known world at the time. It even went into places in Asia that we wouldn't even consider that the gospel could have gone into. If you read, there's a, there's a book about uh, the Roman road. I was given this book, uh, The Silk Road, some years ago. It's just a history of the Silk Road. Um, it's, it's not really uh, riveting writing, okay? But the information is amazing about how the Silk Road was used into the Roman Empire all the way into the Far East 
and how religions trafficked their ideas and their word to far places in the Far East. I would say to you, we may not have it in text in this Bible per se, that it went all the way to the far reaches of the Pacific Ocean, but if we can have the identity of how the Silk Road was used, the gospel went far and wide. Even in a near future context, think about the way the day of Pentecost happened. What was the point of the day of Pentecost? Was that as all those people gathered, they began to hear the preached word in their known language. Peter's preaching in Hebrew, but the Phrygian Jew is hearing it in Phrygian. So the Phrygian Jew who's converted takes the message back to Phrygia. We have to really take an account for what happens when someone's really converted. They don't walk away from their conversion and then go, well, you know what, I'm never going to tell anyone about this. If you've ever been around a young convert, they get truly converted, and it's like you, if you try to shut their mouth, they might just knock you out. <laughs> they want to speak about the things of Christ. Look at the day of Pentecost and go back and think about what happened. Those known languages, them hearing that in a known language, and then them returning to their regions and their towns and their cities, they would have been telling about this message. It would have gone out. It set the stage even for those who would not believe to be already so mad when Paul came into some of those regions. Don't you get it? They were already fired up. Paul comes in and preaches in the synagogue. And, oh, we heard that. One of these young converts has already been here and talked about that. We're going to get, we got to stamp this out. That's because the gospel was going out far and wide. Near future. Far future, it continues to do so. You can see an interactive map on YouTube, which is pretty cool. About it, it, It's a few minutes long. I don't remember, six or seven minutes long or something like that. But it's an interactive map of the gospel going out amidst all of the cultures and societies from uh, AD 30 all the way to 2015. And you see the gospel movement even in times where the Mongols are in power. I mean, it's, it, it's pretty cool. So you can look that up. That was free, by the way. We have to see that there is some far future difficulty that is predetermined that the Lord Jesus gives to them. And I, see, I think you see that in the latter part of Matthew 24 uh, in verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I think there's far future there. And we'll spend some time discussing that when we get there. Chapter 25, verse 6, gives you some far future indication. In the parable of the ten virgins, but at the midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. There's both and. There's near future and far future. Verses 31 to 46 of Matthew chapter 25. I won't read all of that, 
But there's a lot of far future in that context. Luke 21, 24. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Now, I think there's a near future context in verse 23 and 24, but there's also some far future. And when you get in verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There's a time of the Gentiles that will be fulfilled, and Jesus will return. So you have these slivers and places of far future, but if you automatically move to that, you will miss the near future context. As one writer says, two momentous events are here entwined when we look at the Olivet Discourse. Namely, one, the judgment upon Jerusalem and its fall in the year A.D. 70. If you miss the importance of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and the near future context of all of that leading up to A.D. 70, then you will not understand the end times and you will get caught up in the whirlwind of trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. I'm not saying you'll have charts and stuff hanging on your wall, but you might. And I encourage you not to do that. That's dangerous. So... There's two momentous events. One is that judgment of Jerusalem and the destruction of Israel in AD 70 is intertwined here, and that's primarily what's in focus in the Olivet Discourse. But then secondly, there's the final judgment at the close of the world's history, as this writer notes. He says, Our Lord predicts the city's approaching catastrophe as a type of the tribulation at the end of that present era. Or putting it differently, in describing the brief period of great tribulation at the close of history, ending with the final judgment, Jesus is painting in colors borrowed from the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. The Jews had to know something near future, and that picture had to come in fulfillment of prom- promise so that we could then as Gentiles look back and say, you know what, the destruction of Jerusalem was a microcosm of what will happen. God will return. He will send his son and he will come. He is ruling and reigning now and yet there is a coming day where he will completely reconcile all things to himself. But that yet, that time has not yet come. Because if it had, it would have been very obvious Because you know why? The destruction of Jerusalem was very obvious to the disciples and their following generation. You think they, oh, we didn't have any idea that Jerusalem was destroyed. We didn't know the temple was completely torn down. No, they knew it. So like that was to them, it'll be that way for us when the Lord returns. We've just started to scratch the surface but I want to leave you with three observations this morning. Number one, a loss of love for God's word advances coldness of the heart. A loss of love for God's word advances coldness of the heart. In verse 12, Jesus says in Matthew 24, because lawlessness is increased... Most people's love will grow cold. 
Lawlessness means that you don't love the commands of God. Lawlessness means that you will not take the commands of God seriously. And he's warning the disciples. Don't get caught so caught up in the rumors of the wars and the hearing of the wars. And don't get so caught up in all of the natural disasters. I'm telling you, tribulation is coming to you. The most important thing is, is will you follow my commandments? What does John say? If you love me, you'll follow my commandments when speaking of the Lord Jesus. What did the Lord Jesus say himself? If you love me, you'll follow my commandments. A loss of love for God's word advances coldness of the heart. One of the great problems we have in our modern church is we get so caught up in trying to figure out the far future, we're not looking at the present commands of God. Everybody wants to think about the end and not think about what God wants us to do right here and right now. Thinking about the end ought to drive us more to the Word of God. And as we'll come into chapter 25, we'll see that he's going to say, hey, you need to be watching and you need to be working. And one of the reasons this advanced coldness of the heart comes along is because we just don't love the Word of God. We, we kind of put the Word of God aside. Number two, a loss of love for Christian work advances indifference to your neighbor. A loss of love for Christian work advances indifference to your neighbor. We follow God's word. We will love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. If we love the Lord's word, we will love our neighbor as ourself. When we have this loss of love for God's word, it leads to a loss of love for Christian work, and that advances indifference to our neighbor. Your neighbor is your wife, your husband, your children your fellow church members, your co-workers, your schoolmates, your friends? Are you indifferent to your neighbor? I'll just worry about myself. The Lord Jesus is saying, no, you're going to need each other in these times. The times are going to be difficult. The world is going to crowd in and want to crush you. Tribulation is coming. And you're going to need each other. You need my word and you need each other. I think the modern church is at a point of great apathy. Apathy for the word of God and apathy for loving their neighbor. Loving my neighbor doesn't mean that I don't tell the truth. Loving my neighbor doesn't mean that I don't speak the truth of God's word. Loving my neighbor means that I speak the truth of God's word with the graciousness that God has given to me. I do not deserve his grace. There is not one ounce of me in my own being that deserves the grace of God. I am an awful, wretched, nasty, terrible sinner. I wish I could say something different about myself, but I'm just being honest with you. Left to myself, I'm a terrible, awful man. But God gave his grace to a sinner like me. God gave his grace to sinners like some of you, too. And when you... Seek to use that grace in loving your neighbor, your fellow church members, your husband, your wife, your siblings, your co-workers. Number three, 
A loss of love for the world advances endurance in the faith. A loss of love for the world advances endurance in the faith. He says, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The endurance here he speaks of is that one has been saved in and of himself by Christ alone. And the saved person has an endurance that's been granted to them that they would endure to the end. The saved person does not love the world. A loss of love for the world advances endurance in the faith. We need to ask ourselves, how much do we love the world and want to hold on to the world? Or do we love the word of God, his commands, and it would lead us to an endurance in faith, in the very faith in Christ Jesus. As we go through this Olivet Discourse, I hope you'll recognize that the Lord Jesus is giving very serious near-future prophecy right then and there to the disciples. But all of his application can be given to us today. We may not have seen the destruction of Jerusalem, but all of the application that he, he will give will be useful for us today. And we have to ask ourselves, what's going to keep us from falling away in the times of tribulation? The times of trouble, the times of difficulty, the times when being a Christian is not the thing that is so culturally acceptable. Are you going to love the Word of God? Love His people? Stick together? Or are you going to love the world? When you love the world, you'll fall into the world and the world will entrap you and keep you. Let's stay in and with the word that the word and the Lord will stay with us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been brought to this place to worship and glory in you alone. We pray that thus far our worship has been pleasing to you. As we come to this time of, our, uh, of your table, deal with our hearts, Lord and our minds, that we would glory in you alone through the person and the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.